This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 16. Racing Days. It was always the custom for the boats to leave New Orleans between four and five o'clock in the afternoon. From three o'clock onward, they would be burning rosin and pitch-pine, the sign of preparation, and so one had the picturesque spectacle of a rank, some two or three miles long, of tall, ascending columns of coal-black smoke. A colonnade which supported a sable roof of the same smoke blended together and spreading abroad over the city. Every outboard-bound boat had its flag flying at the jack-staff, and sometimes a duplicate on the verge-staff astern. Two or three miles of mates were commanding and swearing with more than usual emphasis. Countless processions of freight-barrels and boxes were spinning athwart the levee and flying aboard the stage-planks. Belated passengers were dodging and skipping among these frantic things, hoping to reach the forecastle companionway alive, but having their doubts about it. Women with reticules and bandboxes were trying to keep up with husbands freighted with carpet-sacks and crying babies, and making a failure of it by losing their heads in the whirl and roar and general distraction. Drays and baggage-vans were clattering hither and thither in a wild hurry, every now and then getting blocked and jammed together, and then during ten seconds one could not see them for the profanity, except vaguely and dimly. Every windlass, connected with every forehatch, from one end of that long array of steamboats to the other, was keeping up a deafening whiz and whirr, lowering freight into the hold, and the half-naked crews of perspiring negroes that worked them were roaring such songs as, De la sac, de la sac, inspired to unimaginable exultation by the chaos of turmoil and racket that was driving everybody else mad. By this time the hurricane and boiler-decks of the steamers would be packed and black with passengers. The last bells would begin to clang, all down the line, and then the pow-wow seemed to double. In a moment or two the final warning came, a simultaneous din of Chinese gongs with a cry, "'All that ain't going, please to get ashore!' And behold, the pow-wow quadrupled. People came swarming ashore, overturning excited stragglers that were trying to swarm aboard. One more moment later a long array of stage-planks was being hauled in, each with its customary latest passenger clinging to the end of it with teeth, nails, and everything else, and the customary latest procrastinator making a wild spring shoreward over his head. Now a number of the boats slide backward into the stream, leaving wide gaps in the serried rank of steamers. Citizens crowd the decks of boats that are not to go, in order to see the sight. Steamer after steamer straightens herself up, gathers all her strength, and presently comes swinging by under a tremendous head of steam, with flag flying, black smoke rolling, and her entire crew of firemen and deckhands, usually swarthy negroes, massed together on the forecastle. The best voice in the lot towering from the myths, being mounted on the capstan, waving his hat or a flag, and all roaring a mighty chorus, while the parting cannons boom, and the multitudinous spectators swing their hats, and huzzah! Steamer after steamer falls into line, and the stately procession goes winging its flight up the river. 
In the old times, whenever two fast boats started out on a race, with a big crowd of people looking on, it was inspiring to hear the crews sing, especially if the time were nightfall, and the forecastle lit up with the red glare of the torch-baskets. Racing was royal fun. The public always had an idea that racing was dangerous, whereas the opposite was the case, that is, after the laws were passed which restricted each boat to just so many pounds of steam to the square inch, no engineer was ever sleepy or careless when his heart was in a race. He was constantly on the alert, trying gauge-cocks and watching things. The dangerous place was on slow, plodding boats, where the engineers drowsed around and allowed chips to get into the doctor and shut off the water supply from the boilers. In the flush times of steamboating, a race between two notoriously fleet steamers was an event of vast importance. The date was set for it several weeks in advance, and from that time forward the whole Mississippi Valley was in a state of consuming excitement. Politics and the weather were dropped, and people talked only of the coming race. As the time approached, the two steamers stripped and got ready. Every encumbrance that added weight or exposed a resisting surface to wind or water was removed, if the boat could possibly do without it. The spars, and sometimes even their supporting derricks, were sent ashore, and no means left to set the boat afloat in case she got aground. When the Eclipse and the A. L. Shotwell ran their great race many years ago, it was said that pains were taken to scrape the gilding off the fanciful device which hung between the Eclipse's chimneys, and that for that one trip the captain left off his kid gloves and had his head shaved but I always doubted these things. If the boat was known to make her best speed when drawing five and a half feet forward and five feet aft, she was carefully loaded to that exact figure. She wouldn't enter a dose of homeopathic pills on her manifest after that. Hardly any passengers were taken, because they not only add weight, but they never will trim boat. They always run to the side when there is anything to see, whereas a conscientious and experienced steamboatman would stick to the center of the boat and part his hair in the middle with a spirit level. No way-freights and no way-passengers were allowed, for the racers would stop only at the largest towns, and then it would be only touch-and-go. Coal-flats and wood-flats were contracted for beforehand, and these were kept ready to hitch on to the flying steamers at a moment's warning. Double-crews were carried, so that all work could be quickly done. The chosen date being come, and all things in readiness, the two great steamers back into the stream, there jockeying a moment, and apparently watching each other's slightest movement, like sentient creatures. Flags drooping, the pent steam shrieking through safety-valves, the black smoke rolling and tumbling from the chimneys and darkening all the air. People, people everywhere! The shores, the housetops, the steamboats, the ships, are packed with them, and you know that the borders of the broad Mississippi are going to be fringed with humanity thence northward twelve hundred miles to welcome these racers. Presently tall columns of steam burst forth from the skate-pipes of both steamers, two guns boom a good-bye, two red-shirted heroes mounted on capstans wave their small flags above the massed crews on the forecastles. Two plaintive solos linger on the air a few waiting seconds, two mighty choruses burst forth, and here they come. 
brass bands bray hail columbia huzza after huzza thunders from the shores and the stately creatures go whistling by like the wind those boats will never halt a moment between new orleans and st louis except for a second or two at large towns or to hitch thirty-cord wood-boats alongside you should be on board when they take a couple of those wood-boats in tow and turn a swarm of men into each by the time you have wiped your glasses and put them on you will be wondering what has become of that wood two nicely matched steamers will stay in sight of each other day after day they might even stay side by side but for the fact that pilots are not all alike and the smartest pilots will win the race if one of the boats has a lightning pilot whose partner is a trifle his inferior you can tell which one is on watch by noting whether that boat has gained ground or lost some during each four-hour stretch the shrewdest pilot can delay a boat if he has not a fine genius for steering steering is a very high art one must not keep a rudder dragging across a boat's stern if he wants to get up the river fast there is a great difference in boats of course for a long time I was on a boat that was so slow we used to forget what year it was we left port in. But of course this was at rare intervals. Ferry-boats used to lose valuable trips, because their passengers grew old and died waiting for us to get by. This was at still rarer intervals. I had the documents for these occurrences, but through carelessness uh, they have been mislaid this boat the john j roe was so slow that when she finally sunk in madrid bend it was five years before the owners heard of it that was always a confusing fact to me but it is according to the record anyway she was dismally slow still we often had pretty exciting times racing with islands and rafts and such things one trip however we did rather well we went to st louis in sixteen days but even at this rattling gate I think we changed watches three times in Fort Adams Reach, which is five miles long. A reach is a piece of straight river, and of course the current drives through such a place in a pretty lively way. That trip we went to Grand Gulf from New Orleans in four days, three hundred and forty miles. The Eclipse and Shotwell did it in one. We were nine days out in the chute of sixty-three, seven hundred miles. The Eclipse and Shotwell went there in two days. Something over a generation ago a boat called the J. M. White went from New Orleans to Cairo in three days, six hours, and forty-four minutes. In 1853 the Eclipse made the same trip in three days, three hours, and twenty minutes. Footnote. Time disputed. Some authorities add one hour and sixteen minutes to this. In 1870 the R. E. Lee did it in three days and one hour. This last is called the fastest trip on record. I will try to show that it was not. For this reason, the distance between New Orleans and Cairo, when the J. M. White ran it, was about 1106 miles. Consequently, her average speed was a trifle over 14 miles per hour. In the Eclipse's day the distance between the two ports had become reduced to one thousand and eighty miles. Consequently her average speed was a shade under fourteen and three-eighths miles per hour. In the R. E. Lee's time the distance had diminished to about one thousand and thirty miles. Consequently her average was about fourteen and one-eighth mile per hour. 
Therefore, the eclipses was conspicuously the fastest time that has ever been made. End of chapter 16